500 years. <laughs> Hi everyone, it's Jeff Till with another episode of 500years.org. It's uh, December 3rd, 2015, and today's topic is duty and obligation, mostly my personal journey to finding the right obligations in my life. We can talk about this in two ways, at least two ways. One of them is from the angry political libertarian type uh, who likes to yell at people to change their minds uh, on why the Federal Reserve is bad and why the military industrial complex is uh, a wholesale evil, and we can shout moral philosophy at people. The other way is more of my personal freedom, happy, productive libertarian self who thinks more about how to build freedom in his own life by changing things that are under his control. This podcast was going to be about the later, about personal obligation and duty, but I thought I would start by reading some of the dark mistress herself, Ayn Rand. So when libertarians like to talk about Ayn Rand, they always hold her with some reverence, and then they always make a big caveat uh, about some terrible thing that they hate uh, about what she wrote or what she did, either in her personal life uh, or in some of her wrong conclusions. It's sort of like people who like Phil Collins uh, from Genesis, uh, but then have to apologize for Susudio, um, or people who like Star Wars and then have to cringe when they have to mention the prequels. Uh, on the, the liberals, on the other hand, uh, love to make her a boogeyman. If you go to Alternet, for example, which is a lefty sort of journalistic site, almost daily they have an article uh, about Ayn Rand, and it's always something like, Paul Ryan, Ayn Rand fan, promotes beating babies, therefore beating babies is bad. Anyways, sort of a straw man type arguments uh, are their favorite about her. Anyways, let's move on. I'm reading from a book, which is actually pretty neat. It's called The Ayn Rand Lexicon, uh, Objectivism from A to Z. It came out in 1988, and I think I got my copy probably around 1999. It's basically an encyclopedia of topics where an editor took about 100 topics, ordered them alphabetically, and then cut and paste from Ayn Rand's body of work uh, the appropriate uh, quips and quotes and paragraphs. I'm going to start with a piece on altruism. What is the moral code of altruism? The basic principle of altruism is that man has no right to exist for his own sake, that service to others is the only justification of his existence, and that self-sacrifice is his highest moral duty, virtue, and value. Do not confuse altruism with kindness, goodwill, or respect for the rights of others. These are not primaries, but consequences, which, in fact, altruism makes impossible. The irreducible primary of altruism, the basic absolute, is self-sacrifice, which means self-immolation, self-abnegation, self-denial, self-destruction, which means the self as a standard of evil, the selfless as a standard of the good. Do not hide behind such superficialities as whether you should or should not give a dime to a beggar. This is not the issue. The issue is whether you do 
or do not have the right to exist without giving him that dime. The issue is whether you must keep buying your life, dime by dime, from any beggar who might choose to approach you. The issue is whether the the need of others is the first mortgage on your life and the moral purpose of your existence. The issue is whether man is to be regarded as a sacrificial animal. Any man of self-esteem will answer no. Altruism says yes. Okay, now I'm going to skip over to a little bit of her thoughts on duty. The meaning of the term duty is the moral necessity to perform certain actions for no reason other than obedience to some higher authority without regard to any personal goal, motive, desire, or interest. It is obvious that that anti-concept is a product of mysticism, not an abstraction derived from reality. In a mystic theory of ethics, duty stands for the notion that man must obey the dictates of a supernatural authority. Even though the anti-concept has been secularized and the authority of God's will has been ascribed to earthly entities, such as parents, country, state, mankind, etc., their their alleged supremacy, supremacy still rests on nothing but a mystic edict. Who in hell can have the right to claim that sort of submission or obedience? This is the only proper form and locality for the question, because nothing and no one can have such a right or claim here on earth. Okay, now I'm going to read a little bit from Responsibility and Obligation. Life or death is man's only fundamental alternative. To live is his basic act of choice. If he chooses to live, a rational ethics will tell him what principles of action are required to implement his choice. If he does does not choose to live, nature will take its course. Reality confronts man with a great many must, but all of them are conditional. The formula of realistic necessity is... Quote, you must, comma, if, blank, and the if stands for the man's choice. So, for example, uh, what it is to achieve a certain goal. So I I paraphrased there. So, uh, more examples. You must eat if you want to survive. You must work if you want to eat. You must think if you want to work. You must look at reality if you want to think. If you want to know what to do, if you want to know what goals to choose, if you want to know how to achieve them. In order to make the choices required to achieve his goals, a man needs the constant automated awareness of the principle which the anti-concept duty has all but obliterated in his mind. So I could probably read from this book and fill up probably 70 hours of airtime. Uh, but the point is is that this is sort of the, the moral philosophy of, of duty, altruism, and obligation. And I think it's probably one of the most important topics she hits upon because all of it uh, has to do with the terrible things that the government does, but they they mask uh, they mask the violence of their action uh, with this um, with the opposite of this moral philosophy uh, based on it's your duty to uh, be drafted and go to war. It's your duty to pay taxes. It's your duty to pay us taxes so we can take care of uh, poor people you don't know. Uh, it's our duty. Uh, it's your duty to to ab- abide by laws that are unfair, um, and they can do this by saying that it has moral background, and that way they don't actually have to get the guns out that uh, back up their statements. Now, what's interesting is there's other groups like the church who can solely rest on the authority of uh, their either good or bad moral philosophy and still get people to comply to the authority. 
uh, they don't have to use guns to back it up. The government must realize that although this is a great, you know, great trick and a great way to get people to do things, uh, it does have a failure rate that the church probably can tolerate. So not everybody has to be a Catholic, not everybody has to be a Muslim. Uh, in a country, everyone has to obey the state. And so it's sort of a one-two. You get the moral philosophy, uh, and then it's backed up by guns. This all talks to the types of duties and obligations that the angry political libertarian likes to talk about, uh, which is like conscription, uh, having to follow uh, unjust laws, and having to pay taxes against your will. None of those things are really in anyone's real control. So even though I could talk about this and read you Ayn Rand on this podcast, neither one of us are going to change any of that. Uh, they are our unfortunate state of nature. So with that in mind, we have to move into an area where we can still find freedom, still find happiness that doesn't re rely necessarily on us learning moral philosophy and certainly doesn't require us to teach anyone else moral philosophy. Because really, even in the perfect libertarian future, I still think only, you know, one or two or five percent of people will have any real interest in moral philosophy. Uh, if we do have finally have uh, a libertarian society, it will be because people enjoy the experience of it, not so much because they uh, read some confusing Ayn Rand. On a personal note, uh, looking back at this book, I haven't gotten it out in a long time, but when I first got it 15 years ago, uh, I really feasted on it. And uh, perhaps because it was so new, but I just really loved um, the exploration that she did and the amount of, of sort of, what do you want to call it, rigor um, and complexity that she put into the thoughts. But now, even when I got this out and uh, was starting to reread it, uh, it's kind of dense and confusing in a lot of places. And the case for personal freedom doesn't require anything that's dense and confusing. So let's move on to that. When you're sliding in the first and you're feeling something burst, diarrhea, diarrhea. <laughs> when you're sliding in the third and you, well, you just a turd, diarrhea, diarrhea. When you're sliding in the home and your shirts are full of foam, diarrhea, diarrhea. When you're sitting in your Chevy and your shirts are feeling heavy, diarrhea, diarrhea. Kevin, honey, where'd you learn that song? Last summer at camp, Mom. Ah, oh, that was money well spent. I didn't say that. That's a decision every woman has to make on her own. What are you, running for Congress? Don't give me that. I want your opinion about what we should do. Let's pretend it's your decision, okay? Pretend you're, you're a caveman or your father. What do you want me to do? I want... I want whatever you want. Well, I want to have the baby. Well, great. Let's have it then. Let's see how I can screw the fourth one up. Hey, let's have five. Let's have six. Let's have a dozen and pretend they're donuts. I'm really happy about the way things are turning out, aren't you? You know, with the frame of mind you're in, not only am I not sure we should have another baby, I'm not sure we should keep the three we've got. Well, I'm ready to discuss it. However, I can't right now because i got to go to the goddamn Little League. Ten little boys are waiting for me to guide them into last place. You really have to go? My whole life is have to. Come on, Kevin, get your glove. 
Our high school guidance counselor used to ask us what you would do if you had a million dollars. Didn't have to work. And then invariably, whatever you'd say, that was supposed to be your career. So if you wanted to fix old cars, then you're supposed to be an auto mechanic. So what did you say? I never had an answer. I guess that's why I'm working at Inatech. No, you're working at Inatech because that question is bullshit to begin with. If everyone listened to her, there'd be no janitors because no one would clean shit up if they had a million dollars. You know what I would do if I had a million dollars? I would invest half of it in Loris Mutual Funds and then take the other half over to my friend Asadullah, who works in uh, securities. Samir, Samir, you're missing the point. The point of the exercise is that you're supposed to figure out what you would want to do. If... PC load letter? What the fuck does that mean? Lawrence, what would you do if you had a million dollars? I'll tell you what I'd do, man. Two chicks at the same time, man. <laughs> That's it? You, you had a million dollars, you, you'd do two chicks at the same time? Damn straight. I always wanted to do that, man. And I think if I were a millionaire, I could hook that up, too, because chicks dig dudes with money. Well, not all chicks. Well, the type of chicks that double up on a dude like me do. Good point. Well, what about you now? What would you do? Besides two chicks at the same time? Well, yeah. Nothing. Nothing, huh? I would relax. I would sit on my ass all day. I would do nothing. So again, welcome back to what will be my seventh original podcast. I recently heard that the average number of podcasts that any podcaster does is seven. And that's usually where, that's on average where people quit. So I've made it this far to be being completely average. Uh, so a couple days ago, I was talking to my friend Isaac, and he said, oh, Jeff, I uh, am enjoying your, your original podcast. When's the next one coming out? And I didn't quite have one ready. And then I sort of looked on my blog to see the dates go by, and I'm like, wow, it's been a long time. Uh, I decided to sign up to do these podcasts. I guess I'm obliged to get one out pretty soon. And then I started thinking, huh is signing up to do the podcast an obligation that I don't want. And why that's an important thought is because I've spent the last 10 or 15 years seriously analyzing personal obligations in my life uh, and really only brilliantly or very focused in a very focused manner in the last two or three years where I completely sort of dropped my angry political libertarian view and really started to focus on things that were that I could control. Now, I, I'd started my own company about 12 years ago, and I could say that's where it really started, but I'm not sure I thought about it in such a purposeful way that I did now. So the, the general wide purpose of this podcast is to figure out whether doing the podcast is a new obligation that I've stacked upon myself, uh, even when I'm a person who likes to remove obligation from his life. The Triple Liability of a Bad Movie. So we just heard a couple clips from two very good movies, uh, Steve Martin in Parenthood, and then Office Space, one of my favorites, A Complete Couch Magnet, every single time. And both those clips talked about obligation. But I want to talk about going to see a bad movie. 
and I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but you go to the movie theater, you pay your ten dollars, uh, you've already driven there, um, you got your ticket, you bought your very expensive popcorn and soda, you sit down, and about maybe twenty minutes into the film, you realize it's the biggest piece of shit you've ever seen. And not only do you realize it's the biggest piece of shit you've ever seen, you know that the next hour and a half are going to be complete misery. So what do you do? Well, a lot of people will have sort of pangs of uneasiness in the idea of actually leaving uh, the film after paying $10 um, and also making the drive. Uh, this was even worse back, this is going to age me, but the back in the old days they used to have video stores, uh, which was a called Blockbuster. Um, was the most famous one and basically what it was was shelves on shelves of video cassettes that you and your girlfriend or your friends or your family would go in uh, walk around the aisles for sometimes an hour trying to figure out which movie you were going to rent for the day and then bring it home and watch it and the same phenomenon would have it you'd have so much investment going uh, between driving to the store spending an hour looking for it and then spending the money to rent it that you'd get home and you'd watch it, and 20 minutes in, you think, oh, this is the worst movie possible. And so many times, was I, w w I was with groups that would continue to watch the film, uh, despite it being awful. And this is the classic uh, sunk cost trap that happens to people when they invest a lot of time or money into something, and it doesn't work out. And then they refuse to change or quit because they think they're going to lose their investment. But I'm going to make the case that... When you see a good movie, you actually come out better or wealthier because you paid your $10, you saw something, you spent your time doing something you really enjoy, and then you got to you know, savor, savor the moment, remember the movie, talk about it with your friends or whatever afterwards. So you don't even think about the $10 that you lost or the two hours that you invested because you came out net better. Now, a bad movie actually has three times the cost if you actually sit through it and watch it and I'm going to assume that you can't get a refund because one you paid the ten dollars so that was the first cost two you didn't get what you wanted which was a good movie and then three you wasted your time for two hours watching something that made you unhappy so in essence uh, a bad movie cost like three times negative whereas a good movie uh, doesn't cost you anything, it actually returns bar more. So that's why um, Tim Ferriss once said, always be quitting, which means if you're in the middle of a meal that you're not enjoying or you're too full, go ahead and quit because you'll end up better for it. Uh, if you have a bad business that is unprofitable or unenjoyable, it's time to quit that too. Same goes for a job. Uh, same goes for an event that you're not enjoying. It's just quit because you're actually paying more uh, by sticking with the choices you made than you do by abandoning the bad decision. Ah, stop, 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 stop. That was the sound of an alarm clock. And I can tell you right now, straight from my heart, that if you think you're free and you still have an alarm clock, you truly aren't. Now, it's okay if once in a while you have an early flight uh, or you have a call with uh, people in China or something like that, and you do have to set an alarm to get up early. But if that's part of your everyday life, like every single day, 
every single day, Monday through Friday, you have to wake up to that sound and be unawoke, you know, awoken rather from a perfectly natural state of sleeping, then you are enslaved. If to be truly free of the obligation and to have freedom of sleep, where you sleep until you are rested, and then you get up in a comfortable way, not shaken awake, you know, in the middle of a slumber, in the middle of the dream, you have to figure out how to get away from an alarm clock. And it doesn't count to just sort of train your body, uh, you know, as if you are Pavlov's dog to get up at the same time. What you want to do is to be the master of your schedule so that you can get up exactly when you want. And dare I say, because there's also the other side of the, the night, which is going to bed at a certain time. And people who have uh, alarm clocks n normally will have to go to bed at a certain time, too, because they can't risk uh, having their sleep uh, cut short because of the rigid time that they have to get up. These are mostly people who go to work, uh, who have to show up at an office or the store or the factory at a certain time every single morning. Um, and it's usually earlier than they want to go. Now, this is also a large projection from schooling because that's exactly how school works, is kids have to get up at some horrible time in the morning to catch the bus, and that always almost requires them either having an alarm clock or having their parents have an alarm clock to wake them from an otherwise healthy and deep sleep. I know from now, from uh, now that my kids don't go to school, uh, the kids get up at all sorts of different times. So my son got up at 8 o'clock today, and my daughter got up at 9.45, and then my other daughter got up around 7.30. Uh, this was all based on how much they wanted to sleep, and they were able to be flexible with when they went to bed. And of course, none of it affected my, me or my wife because we also got to sleep precisely as long as we wanted to. So anyways, ditch that alarm clock. Figure out a way to get out of your life if you want to be more personally free and reduce obligation in your day. And while you're at it, go ahead and throw your kid's alarm clock away, too. Uh, first of all, there's no reason for 13 years that they should have their sleep all screwed up and shouldn't have a natural and healthy state of free sleeping. But by doing so, by keeping them on the alarm clock, you're going to condition them to believe that that's okay for the rest of their lives. And we've seen this in countless of millions and millions of people who have to have that alarm clock in their lives and think nothing of it because probably they got conditioned to it uh, for 13 years going to school. something that I've always disliked, but now I've grown to sort of hate, and that's long-extended either trips to visit family or to have family visit us for a very long time. And it's not that I dislike visiting with family. I enjoy my in-laws' company very much, and I've uh, when my mother was alive, I enjoyed seeing her. Uh, it's just that because of the travel 
and everything else is all of a sudden you have to cram yourself into the same house for four or five or seven days or even two weeks as uh, I did last summer with my in-laws. You end up with just these packed days of every single moment from breakfast time to lunch time to the afternoon to dinner time to the evening activities uh, where constantly have uh, no privacy, are constantly forced to converse regardless of how much you have to say and basically uh, are under sort of a, a constant surveillance in a way. And that's just not a comfortable way to be. I mean, which which is much much nicer is to be able to see someone who you like and have them come over for three or four hours, and then you send them home. So unfortunately, I know geography uh, for this um, makes makes this kind of situation tough for most people, including myself. I haven't completely figured out how to get rid of it, but it's another way that we sort of make ourselves unfree uh, through obligation. Now, the more, the more insane version of this is vacation. Most people, when thinking of vacation, think of it as, as a one or two week sort of relapse from their normal stressful lives where they get to go somewhere and do, you know, either absolutely nothing or, or something that just doesn't resemble uh, whatever their day-to-day work and home life is. And there's nothing, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But it's weird that people feel like vacation is only this thing that you have once or twice a year and that it's sort of done in a marathon type style. And again, I know this has to do with the expense of travel and people uh, needing to get time off from work and such. But ideally what you want to do is you want to sort of be in a a sort of steady semi-state of being on vacation. So if there's things that you enjoy, like going to the beach Uh, or eating at nice restaurants, or playing golf, or whatever it is, you want to be able to do this sort of on a day-to-day basis, you know, so it's either, you know, a a day or an afternoon here and there, you know, every single week, and not be in a constant state of being stressful and wound up, only to have these brief, you know, one-week releases very infrequently. You want to set yourself up so that you're constantly... Um, having that sort of that peace and unwound time of vacation constantly, uh, you know, week after week. And of course, the, the flip side of that is that you don't want to be on such an anti-vacation time when you're at work uh, and at home so that there's not such a, a drastic difference between the state of being relaxed and on vacation and participating in your daily life. Now, this is all sort of part and parcel with how I've transformed my life recently. And this partly has to do with how I set up work, uh, but also happens to be where I chose to live. So I came down here to South Carolina. Uh, We have a water view in our backyard. Uh, The weather is persistently nice for most of the year, uh, except for, you know, a couple fiendishly hot days in the summer and and a couple days that we only get to the high of 50s in in the wintertime. But mostly... Uh, it's it's beautiful weather most of the year around. Uh, we're only uh, a short ride to the beach. We have a pool in our neighborhood, and we have all these vacation. We have uh, Charleston, which is uh, uh, as a beautiful city uh, with fabu restaurants. So we've set this up so that even during the week, we can easily have these short vacation periods 
uh, and even integrate them into the day-to-day -day life so that part of the day is spent outside uh, walking and swimming and enjoying the stress-free nature of not being wound up at work. So highly recommended, but it's something you really have to think about. If there are things that you like to do, such as if you did like to you know, go to the beach and visit nice restaurants, then live there. Go, go find a spot where you can make that vacation experience part of your everyday life, and you will be more free. Besides being free on a day-to-day -day basis, having more general ubiquitous vacation also reduces the risk that if one of those one or two weeks that the standard vacation person has goes wrong, let's say you go to Florida and it's rainy and cold that week, uh, you sort of feel like you've lost the whole opportunity to have that unwind, pleasurable vacation time. Additionally, it also puts additional, when you're in that standard vacation mode of concentrating it all into just a couple select weeks, you also put a tremendous amount of pressure on yourself and potentially your friends or family by making sure that you have to have as much fun as possible in those few moments you have in vacation land. So what does that end up being? You know, do you get up earlier than you'd want to to make sure you get in line for the theme park uh, or get that spot on the beach? And if you don't have fun, if somehow you're disappointed, uh, you have almost no recourse. You can't quit like we talked about before. You'll be in a sunk cost trap on your own vacation, and that's really not free at all. Little tip for me to you. Homer Simpson, he's the greatest guy in history. From the town of Springfield, he's about to hit a chestnut tree. So, in my opinion, the biggest obligation or duty we seem to have, and this is all from throughout time, back from caveman days until modern times, is work. Oh. See what I did there? I tied Fred Flintstone and the Homer Simpson bit together. See, they were both getting off work, and they shout yabba-dabba-doo because it's the happiest moment of their day is when they can stop working. For most people, I think this is true. Uh, and I discussed this a bit in the work identity problem in podcast too. But most people are sort of pre-programmed, probably through the 13, hour, uh, 13 years of school they go to, to presume that work is to be this uh, full-time, 40 to 60-hour-a-week piece of drudgery that they endure so that they can live the rest of their lives in the scraps that are the evening and the weekend. To me, that seems absolutely brutal. I just can't think of anything else that takes up quite so much time and so much energy and makes so many people unhappy than having to toil away at some career for so long which means that if you're into personal freedom one of the first things you really got to figure out is how to either alleviate work reduce work not work or do make work something that you really enjoy doing 
there's basically three dimensions of when you're looking at taking a job or evaluating work. There's the time that it takes, there's the money that it returns, and then there's the content of the job as far as how enjoyable it is. A lot of people don't even look at the time dimension whatsoever and just presume that the 40 to 60 hour week is standard and cannot be altered. Many people get kind of confused with the content of the work as far as how they enjoy it or not enjoy it to the point where they will even take unenjoyable jobs and then claim that that was their sort of life's mission uh, or that they like their work. And then the last one, money, is the other dimension that when people evaluate different courses of work, uh, many people will always take the one that seems to return the highest amount of money without regard to the other two dimensions of time and whether they like it. And you're going to see this, like I would guess, in corporate law, medicine, and uh, you know, uh, consulting for sure, and big you know security type investment, you know, investment banking, where people presume that they're going to work, you know, 80 hours a week. They're going to find very little satisfaction in the actual work they do, but it does return a lot of money that they can then, uh, you know, have a big house or a big boat that they inhabit and these little tiny portions of their, their free time that they have. And that can be a big trap and a huge obligation and a ruination of freedom in itself. For my own story, this has been a 20-year struggle to figure out how to make this work and how to make this balanced. Coming out of college, I was hell for leather, determined that I was going to get a good-paying, high-quality job at some point. And so I moved right from uh, Kalamazoo, Michigan, to Boston, where there was an active job market. I immediately got a job in a mailroom uh, of a small technology research firm and started working my, working my tail off. Uh, I, after a year, I had developed a bunch of databases for this firm and thought I was underpaid. So I went into temp work, eventually getting into the prestigious firm of A.T. Carney as a graphic artist after slaving away uh, 80, hour, 80 to 90 hours a week, uh, often having to even spend the night at the hotel across from where the, the company was. I did eventually get recruited to go to PricewaterhouseCoopers, uh, then just Pricewaterhouse, uh, another very prestigious accounting firm where I was made a junior strategy consultant, where I then started travel full-time. And full-time travel is typically about 50 weeks per year. Uh, you get up either, you either leave Sunday night or more typically Monday morning uh, around 5 a.m. from your house, and you travel somewhere far away. I was in Boston, and the furthest I had to go was to Medford, Oregon, but I used to also commute to LA for months at a time. Uh, to Florida for months at a time in New Jersey. You spend your days on client site uh, away from your, your girlfriend or your wife and your friends. Uh, the day usually starts at 7.30. You have your meal, meals catered throughout the day. Uh, you stop working with clients around 5 when they go home, and then your real work day begins uh, between 5 and, say, 11 or midnight, where you do additional project work. Usually you have your meal, again, brought in for you so you don't leave your desk. Uh, and then you're often given an assignment to take back to your hotel room that takes you to, you know, midnight, one o'clock. 
you begin the whole day uh, over again. The consultancy presumes to own your time because you're actually you're, you're kept away from uh, your wife, your friends, your family, as well as all of your material possessions. So you don't you can't even pretend like you want to go enjoy your house or enjoy your television or your uh, golf clubs or whatever else. And then you come home at Friday by around midnight often and you get this sort of scrap of 36 to 48 hours of time to sort of compress, but it's not unusual to have to work during that time just at home. And then you started all over again. And I did that for three years, uh, all the while being told that I was doing a very important and meaningful job and that I would not see any kind of economic opportunity that would ever be better. And at the time, uh, in the early time, I was actually making, although I had this great title and I had a travel and expense account, if you actually took my salary and divided it by the number of hours I was working, including travel, I was making just about and sometimes under minimum wage. I eventually, for some reason, I I started breaking down where I couldn't, I, I didn't understand why life was so miserable and why I felt I didn't you know I wouldn't have used the language of freedom back then but you know why I felt so oppressed and unfree and the confusion was because everyone around me was on that same treadmill and they kept on encouraging me and reminding me how much I liked that job and how much money I was really getting and how unimportant my time was, or that that time wasn't even a a consideration uh, to be thought of. And eventually I I just left. Um, After three years, I took the first job that would have me. Uh, In the interview that I had with that new job, I had said that I don't want to work very hard, which they thought was really unusual. And I said, hey, I'll put in my, my 55 hours a week, but you know, that's going to be it. I'm not going to um, give you my weekends and all of my evenings. And by the standard of this new company, this was Pamit River in Boston, sort of a digital marketing agency, uh, I, w- I looked like a workaholic. And I had no idea. Uh, eventually, I would stay there uh, in another firm that was related to the same people for another three or four more years. And Eventually, I was sent home to work to support a woman who was uh, a, a senior executive who was commuting and living in Japan. And so I essentially got to spend, oh, six months to a year working out of the house with very little contact with her uh, because of the time tone zone differences. We'd only have like a meeting like at seven in the morning and then one at eight at night. And I became very accustomed to not not having a lot of work to do. This had also followed a brief period where I was sent home from the previous company uh, because they had found me redundant but didn't fire me. I can tell that more of that story later, not not in this podcast. So eventually, when um, this Jap- Japanese engagement ended, the firm I worked for said, "You know, you have to come back to the office now, and you have to resume working." And I just, I didn't even go in to quit. I just, uh, on the, the uh, over the phone, I said, I'm not coming in anymore. And luckily, I had uh, scored a, a sort of a freelance assignment, and that was the birth of my own company. Since then, I've essentially, this was about 12 years ago, I've probably, 
in the early days, I maybe I had a couple dozen meetings. Uh, in the last seven or eight years, I've never met a client face to face. I have not had any live in person meetings, and I keep my call log to only three or four calls a week if I can make it. Recently, on the big shift that I was making of obtaining more personal freedom, uh, this happened about two years ago, uh, a series of events that would take me to Jeff, what I'm going to call Jeff 5.0, where I would even pivot further from work and I would redelegate uh, all most of the activities that I was performing onto employees, even if it meant that I would make less money. Now, oddly enough, it didn't result in me making any less money, but it did result in me drastically reducing my work week. So not only was I at home controlling my environment, not having meetings, not having an office visit, but I would also barely be putting in um, you know, more than a few hours every week to accomplish uh, my goals. And at the same time, keeping my income basically level through that whole time. And my income's pretty good. I'd be like, in a, not quite a one percenter, but I'm like a three or four percenter. So not too bad. So what does everyone else have to do to figure out their work? Well, the biggest, maybe the most important thing is not to just uh, fall into that school trap where you're like, this is what everyone does, this is what I have to do, where you just go from the school station, which is pretty much resembles work. You know, you get to go there in the morning, you're told what to do, you're told when to eat lunch, you're told when to go home, to the university schedule, which is very similar, then to the corporate or factory work schedule, which is you show up here, here's the task that you do, this is when you eat lunch, uh, this is when you get to go home, and really start to examine what's important to you, and figuring out whether it's the content of the job, the amount of time, and how much the money means to you. At the same time, you should think about, um, you can think about entrepreneurship and how being the boss can change things, both in how much control you have over your day and your freedoms, as well as putting yourself in front of the transactions that allow you to make more money than, than you can with your just regular, you know, hour, hour per dollars type compensation scenario. Uh, in the Rich Dad, Poor Dad book, uh, the, the biggest thing he says is that poor people work for money, meaning they go and they work hard to get a salary, and that rich people have money work for them, which means they use capital uh, to have other people or other devices, be them assets or, or machines or, or what have you stocks make money for them and so that's those are other techniques that you can look into as you try to reconfigure the biggest limiter of freedom in your life which is work ah god damn it stupid alarm went off again let's take a quick break from work and talk about the freedom to take a nap basically if you get sleepy during the day you really want the ability to lay down, regardless of what other people think. So if you're at the office, slaving away, chances are you can't take a nap. In fact, you probably have a hard time getting something to eat, getting something to drink, or even going to the bathroom with the modicum of privacy uh, if you're stuck at that desk job. This is the same for kids, or even worse, because when kids are in school, They can't uh, take a nap or take a break or just even rest their eyes while they're at school. They also can't usually go to the bathroom anytime they want. Uh, 
uh, going number two, I remember, seemed to be a terror in high school. I think they had taken the uh, the partitions off the toilet seats because people would, I don't know, they would uh, smoke cigarettes or something. And uh, certainly kids have no freedom to grab a snack when they're hungry. I think one of the most laughable uh, reflections of people not allowed to take naps or take breaks when they want to during their typical work day is that some of the really hip companies like think like a startup or Google or something have begun putting in nap couches at the office just for those times when somebody needs to close their eyes, which, you know, sounds maybe kind of progressive or whatever, but really is it such a uh, treasure to be told that you're now allowed to have a nap while you work. And I'm presuming these are places where people uh, work extremely long hours anyways, but it's kind of degrading to have that be the new thing that you can actually control your own sleep schedule. So again, if you want to be extra free, you got to be able to take a break when you want, take a nap if you wish, any time of the day, uh, have something to eat or drink on your own schedule at your own beck and call. And of course, to have somewhere comfortable to take a dump on the times that you want to do that. Okay, we're not done yet, but I just wanted to play a little bit of music. This is Mom's Favorite Bum. Mom's Favorite Bum Isn't really me who can't forget all this shit I've practiced cherish, tried to sell a bit Money spent's not the half of it I'm living large, I'll charge to my card Look at me, I'm riding crap That boils the business keying in A homoerotic play I'm the whiskey commando I brandish diarrhea's name I rooted 20 angels A potato man and a bank of thieves I riddled on and rattled off A thousand worlds each made of cheese Let's get back to the work topic. There's another way that you can... I, I talked about minimizing hours or using having money work for you or essentially ways of building passive income and getting out of the work environment as ways to mitigate or alleviate the obligation that is work. Another popular one is called doing what you love. Now, I, I don't usually advocate for this uh, for most most cases because for the first the first part it's really hard to do uh, especially if you don't love something that isn't immediately billable or fungible or has uh, direct market value so becoming a professional sports player uh, a professional musician an artist anything along those lines that people typically find enjoyable are very very difficult to to monetize unless you are in the top you know, fraction of a percent uh, of the highest talent. There's other things that people do that they say they love. Like you'll sometimes find someone who runs a business or owns a restaurant or a bar, or maybe they even sell real estate or sell cars, or maybe they are a management consultant and they will claim that they love their jobs. What I'm always skeptical about that is how much of the school training that we went through sort of teaches people that they have to have a, a passion that shares both their bill-paying capability 
and what they like to do. How many of these, these people actually just talk themselves into saying that they really love uh, selling carpet when really they couldn't hate it more? Another reason why I'm sort of down on doing what you love is it often com uh, completely will cripple that activity uh, or bend it in weird ways. So in my firm, which is a design firm to a degree, we often hire fine art majors who say, well, I'm not going to make money painting these uh, romantic pictures that I want, but I can be a graphic designer because that's a marketable skill. And while the there's some, some of the skills do overlap, such as, you know, a good sense of aesthetics and the, and the ability to execute uh, images, the nature of doing management consulting graphics is nothing like the romantic paintings that they actually wanted to do. So the, the actual part that they love is severely compromised. Even I have a friend who's a physicist, uh, who I would say is a very successful physicist, and it's what he was always wanted to do. Even within his job, he doesn't get to precisely study what he wants and has to spend a lot of time uh, doing grant writing and dealing with administration and a bunch of things that obviously he wouldn't choose to do had he just been pursuing physics as a hobby. The other thing is that if you try to conflate the activity of paying bills with the activity of what you like, uh, you might not be very good at paying bills. So whereas if you concentrated on activities that were explicitly focused towards the act of paying bills, which is the act of making money, you could perform it much more effectively than if you tried to retrofit your hobby or your liking into that function. They're really two very separate things. Um, the things that you enjoy and then this activity, this sort of clinical, uh, gross, naked uh, capability to pay bills. So that's my take on it. There's not really a right, right or wrong way, and I hope all of you, sweethearts, get to do what you love, uh, whether it's for money or not. Just be very careful in your analysis of whether you think that, that the activity of bill paying and the activity of enjoyment need to be the same thing. And if it's not working and if it's frustrating, uh, examine the relationship between the two and consider doing something different. In the end, when you consider the obligation and the duty of having to work, what I think is most important is that you abandon the school mentality, which says that just like school, that you are required to do something because other people are doing it, because it conforms to everybody else, and that there's this set uh, method and schedule and set of expectations that apply to everybody so that you automatically just sort of fall off the conveyor belt of college and enter the conveyor belt of corporate or factory employment with its set schedules, its limitations on when you can sleep, uh, the activities that you don't like to do, the set 40 or 50 or 60 hour work week, the commute. Know that you don't, you don't have to necessarily do that and what you want to do is take a very strategic and analytic look, and even a creative look, at how employment and money creation and bill paying fits into your life. And it's different for everybody, but as you examine, you might find some very, very interesting uh, alternatives. You might discover that you would prefer to have time and will sacrifice money for it. You might realize that you 
might want to have the better content of your job. And again, you're, you're going to sacrifice money. Or you might realize that what you really want is a whole big shit pile of money. And then you're going to compromise those other two aspects of time and job content. Anyways, I also recommend, besides long bouts of contemplation, uh, talking about it with other people who are open-minded. And don't be afraid to do analysis on paper. Open up a spreadsheet or a notebook and write some stuff down. Write, write down what you really want to do. Write down what you're good at. Write down what options can be. And see if you can make a plan to change. That's what I did. And it took me 10 years of going you know, through the factory route of doing what was expected of me and what I thought a normal job was. And then 10 years of reverse engineering or actually undoing both my school, school mentality and how I approach work. And now what I have is not a job that I love, but it's a very interesting job of telling stories and drawing pictures. And it's highly delegated so that I get to not spend a tremendous amount of time. I'm a part-time worker. Uh, it's very lucrative. I work with great people and I get to nap and eat and everything else whenever I want. So here's another personal story. Back in 1999, uh, right around the time that I would finally finish the my hellish career at the prestigious firm of Price Waterhouse Coopers, I worked on my second opera. Uh, these are vanity projects I do. I have eight albums out. You can go find them at tasmlab.com. This was my fourth album, and the first one I did that was a piano and violin and classical guitar operetta with a male and a female singer. And the whole story of the essential cubicle nose picker was about a guy who couldn't take his obligations anymore. Uh, he had achieved great success at work. Uh, he had a girl that he thought he loved. He had a whole life set up that was completely modeled on an ideal life of a what's considered an ideal life for a 29-year-old who is looking for success in the world and to be recognized by his peers and his parents as having done all the right things. But he realizes that he's horribly unhappy, and he eventually, through a series of contemplations, decides that he has to leave the job, leave the girl, leave the city, and go do something completely different. Probably... The highlight of the album is this song, Mom's Favorite Bun, where he finally decides to take off and destroy all of these weird, corporate preconceived things that he had to be. Here's a little bit more of it, but there's more podcast. I'm only playing a segment, so stay tuned. World of lies, I'm not the baddest nigga you can see, but I'm so sorry. I bet you thought I was tough as truck. Casual day doesn't make me dope. I'm a fat white freak who overeats. And I could lose the starch within my clothes. All the tantrums that I throw. All the excuses that I stole. To the trouble that I make 
The original title of the song, Mom's Favorite Bum, was about this actual homeless person, this obese woman who lived in Harvard Square. And every time my mom would visit me in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and we walked by this bum, uh, she would hand her $20. So it was sort of the joke that that was mom's favorite bum. But then I, I sort of decided to peg the best idea onto the main character as being someone who is... Uh, not really what he seems. He's the bum, but he's doing exactly what his mother would hope to. Uh, I'll read you some of the lyrics. Bear with me. Mom's favorite bum isn't really me who cannot forget all this shit. I've practiced, cherished, tried to celibate. The money spent is not the half of it. I'm living large. I'll charge to my card. Look at me. I'm writing crap that bores the business, keying in a homoerotic play. I'm the whiz kid commando. I brandished diarrhea's name. World of lies, I'm not the badass you conceive. I'm so sorry. I bet you thought I was tough as trucks. Casual day doesn't make me dope. I'm a fat white freak who overeats. I could lose the starch within my clothes, all the tantrums that I throw, all the excuses that I stole to relive the parade. All the trouble that I make to believe the dreams I fake and the stumbles are as intense as a bum's own charade. Mom's favorite bum is a drunk who cannot conceive all of us, running like we can't control our feet. Paying bills don't make me smart. I think I'll stay home today. Instead of making decks and checks and strategy, implementation plans for clowns to play out, I'm the pride of the nation, brandished diarrhea's name. Come and pay the cover charge to stop and watch me piss on my wrist, trying to wash my hands of all of this. The salary doesn't make me intense. I'm getting bored the more I score. If I could lose the belt around my waist, let my pants fall away, back the comb from my hair till I'm drunk from the mess, and I'll crowd around myself, I will board up my house. I will try to hide in bed till I escape the profane. I burglarize, I confuse distress with success, respects, detects, better letter, get another letter, better setter for, okay, respect, detects, better let her get a better letter setter for her pains, the failure crops an upsetting jig, I'm so sick of all of this, so sick of all this shit, I could stop the fool from playing, men from working every moment, so fucking important that it's shameful, and every second is another second built upon the failure, Money, God the money, sings a pretty song. Can make any man long for the seduction of its taste. Oh, it makes a man feel strong. It makes a man belong. It makes a man feel strong. It makes a man feel strong. When he crawls up to the stage with all the money that he's made, he will throw it all away, feels his blood begin to drain. As he begs the music's love, as he shreds his business clothes, as he grows his hair out long and hopes that it means more than it means. To the hours that he sold and all the pennies that he holds, he will toast them all good night as he flushes the sight of the monster that he made and the years that he spent chasing crowds unto their death, hoping to go home sometime. When mother's stoned, she gives away 
all the money that she's made to a drunkard in a cage who forgets she's sound and found enough to make it home without throwing up. Hey, did you know that you get what you sign up for? That means if you choose to take on an obligation, you end up getting that obligation. It seems very simple, doesn't it? But how often have you heard someone complain that they've either signed up for a book club or a gym membership or they promised to uh, do something week after week or they uh, were invited to a wedding they didn't want to go to or they signed up for a class that they find to be a big pain in the ass and uh, or they signed up their kids uh, for a uh, ridiculous amount of t-ball and soccer and extracurricular activities. Uh, or they've, they've made sort of vacation plans to commute to a family visit that's way too long, and then they complain about it. Well, you get what you sign up for. If you sign up for something, you get it. If you ask for something, it might happen. So, understanding that you get what you sign up for, don't sign up for shit you don't want to do. Here's a couple you-get-what-you-sign-up-for type stories. My wife joined a book club about a year ago. And so about three days before the book club meeting, she sits with a pair of headphones listening to an audio book that she doesn't enjoy for about three days straight, like every every sort of waking hour from the moment she gets up till the moment we tuck the kids in to our bed. And then the Tuesday night comes where she has to go talk about the book and she cancels, you know, 50% of the time. And the times she doesn't cancel, she says, boy, I really don't want to go. And uh, But then goes anyways. So this is the kind of thing where you place a negative obligation upon yourself. Another, I don't have the link here, but James Ultracker, the author and blogger, uh, wrote that he never goes to weddings anymore. Uh, he realized he didn't like uh, the obligation of sitting with a bunch of strangers uh, at supposedly what's supposed to be a fun event, the obligation to dance, having to bring a gift, dress up, all the stuff that you have to do when you go to a wedding where you're pretty much not going to know 90% of the people and they sort of arbitrarily seat you with, with some random random people. I think last time we went to a wedding for my niece, uh, we did know about a dozen people there, but you know they sat us at the table with children as being like the one thing that could bind us together. And so we didn't know anyone we were sitting with. So anyway, he made the smart decision to just refuse every wedding invitation that he got uh, solely based on the fact that he hated them. Now I'm just going to bang through a couple of, of other obligations that you may have people, you, not you, but maybe some people have put upon themselves that they really shouldn't. One is family and friends. Uh, family in particular, extended family, family that's rude to you, family that doesn't treat you nice, family that you don't enjoy hanging out with, you know, stop making obligations to go see them. I know it's tough. Uh, Stefan Molyneux uh, in his family series goes into great detail about how not to hang out with family members that you dislike. Uh, the same goes for friends. A lot of times you pick up friends sort of automatically. Uh, maybe you knew them from college or for some other reason, you started hanging out, but after a while, you realize that you don't like them so much anymore, or that you don't really value the time you spend together. And again, that can be tough and it can seem rude, but you know, abandon those friends that you don't really enjoy. Uh, if the neighbors 
off, offer you over, you know, for a, a cocktail party that you don't, and you don't want to talk to any of those people, then don't go. Uh, that goes for all social obligations. We talked about the wedding for a second. Uh, but if there's, if you're invited to a party that you don't want to go to, uh, if you're invited to participate in a charity or, uh, you know, pledge for an event or, or do anything like that, that you just don't care to do, then don't do it. Other obligations come from simply owning stuff. So for example, a lot of people want a nice car that has a nice brand like a Mercedes or a BMW and then saddle themselves uh, with a giant payment that reinforces their uh, the necessity that they go to whatever job that they have that they might not like, uh, all to pay for the car, which is essentially just to take them to their job anyways. So can really consider about the burdens of owning things. Uh, we, my family has one car that we lease because we don't like having it repaired. We don't like financial surprises and it's a Honda. So even though I make a big salary, uh, we're fine with a fairly humble automobile and only owning one. The same goes for a house. If you own a house, and people have the natural instinct to want to have a big, nice house, which is fine. Uh, I actually prefer a nice big house, mostly because I'm in it with the entirety of my family uh, all day, every day. And sometimes I don't leave the campus here, which I'm including my home, my neighborhood, the swimming pool, and the grocery store at the end of the neighborhood uh, for weeks at a time. So a big house is important to me. It's an obligation I choose to take on. But owning a house can be rough. It can be a massive payment that, again, you know, entraps you into your job. Uh, there's uh, catastrophic expenses with having a home. Uh, when we owned our last home, we had to put uh, a new roof on it, which was like $15,000. We had to have it painted twice, which was a total expense of $18,000. We had to purchase a new hot water heater, new appliances, all of these unexpected uh, obligations that come up from owning a home can be very stressful. And now we, now we actually rent a home and it's quite a bit easier. We just pay the rent check and every time something breaks, uh, someone else comes over and fixes it. So keeping that in mind, don't automatically, you know, follow the, the, the George W. Bush advice that home ownership makes you a good American and that you're not really an adult unless you own a home and don't fall into the idea that it's this uh, investment either. It is a consumption good. It's a, it's a slowly wasting asset, and sometimes you can make money. Uh, in our first condo, I did make a hundred grand when we sold it, and then I lost a hundred and forty grand when we sold our last house. So, it doesn't always work like an investment. It can be very speculative, in my opinion. Debt and finances uh, can also be something that hangs over your head and feels like an obligation. Uh, any debt that you take, it's easy to take on credit card debt or to get, um, you know, home equity loan. But again, those those financial obligations can seem uh, like a real burden, especially if it further entraps you into that job you don't like. How about chores? Uh, chores can be an obligation. Now, what I do is we hire a cleaning service, and that way we don't have to do the those chores ourselves. And we have have a lawn service that comes by, so I don't have to bother having that over my head. We have someone else that comes and does the pine straw and the landscaping. We have another person that is our bug person who keeps uh, the keeps the place bug free. And so anything that you really don't want to do, examine seeing if you can get someone else to do it for you. 
And that might mean that you incur those expenses, but perhaps you're better at making money doing something else. Um, an hour of my time at my job is probably worth net billing of between, you know, two, three, four hundred dollars. Uh, if I spend that hour pushing a lawnmower where I could have, you know, hired a kid or a uh, usually uh, illegal immigrant to do it for 25 or 30, then my time is much better spent doing the work activity versus mowing the lawn. Lastly, uh, I have on here exercise and diet, and I was going to do this with the alarm clock like I did napping, because if you have a job, uh, it should accommodate uh, both your exercise and diet routine. And when I uh, had a full-time job where I had a show but an office, I neither did exercise, and it was almost required that I would have to eat lunch with the team, usually at a restaurant. So I was having you know a hamburger and french fries or steak tips every single day for lunch and not exercising. Now, at the same time, um, so now that I'm home, I can spend actually, I spend about an hour and a half each morning uh, walking and swimming, and I'm very careful about what I eat. Now, at the same time, it says, well, Jeff, the an exercise uh, regimen is an obligation on into itself, and I, I agree, as is a diet and keeping track of your weight and your other sort of health metrics. Now, of course, this is an obligation that is chosen and it's intrinsically chosen because I know that I'm putting off, uh, you know, present consumption or deferring pleasure to later because I know it's going to make me better overall. So again, it's just something to think about. You don't want your extrinsic obligations to, you know, exclude you from doing things that are good for you. And then when you look at taking on positive intrinsic obligations, like an exercise plan and a diet plan, um, it can be very valuable to you. Boy, the way Glenn Miller played. Songs that made my hit parade. Guys like us, we had it made. Those were the days. And you knew when you were then. Girls were girls and men were men. Mr. We could use a man like Hybert Hoover again. Didn't need no welfare state. Everybody pulled his weight. G.R.O.L. Archie Bunker reminds me of someone I know very well, who is my dad. And my dad just died about two months ago after a life of total negative obligation. He was a negative obligation machine. He hated school, and then, but he directly, he didn't go to college, for better or worse. He entered the workforce apprenticing for his dad and proceeded to work about 70 hours a week for the next 40 years. He had a family, both my sister and I, and a wife uh, for 21 years before they divorced, uh, but he never enjoyed being around his family at all, which is, I think, partly why maybe he spent so much time at work trying to pay the bills. Uh, he, would, he would basically uh, medicinalize himself when he came home from work with uh, mint schnapps, and on Sunday, we wouldn't really see him much at all either. 
Um, he worked all day Saturday, and uh, he was very reluctant to go to sort of the kids' events. Uh, he didn't care too much to spend time with us and basically ignored us for the most part. Um, when he finally retired, he absolutely had nothing to do because he never figured out any good obligations he could set up for himself. All he ever knew were the negative obligations of maintaining the house, maintaining the family, and going to work. And so he ended up with a retirement of liking absolutely nothing. So all he would do was he, was, he wasn't in physically good shape. So all he would do is sit in a chair, uh, smoke cigarettes, drink, and watch television. And he didn't really care for television that much either. Uh, but he never even learned how to find a book that he might like to read, uh, do an activity like a hobby. Um, I think he played a, he played a little bit of golf and, and some bowling, I think, when he was younger. But he basically let negative obligation uh, pretty much ruin his life until the point where he was just sort of waiting around to die uh, for years, not knowing what to do. In some ways, he was completely helpless because probably of how he was raised uh, to be sort of negative, to endure the obligation, and to never think twice about what he was doing in his life. Now, me, I still lived under his shadow, I think, for a long time, because I he, he insisted, I went to art school, uh, but he really, for watercolor painting and acting, uh, he really wanted me to become an accountant because he was terrified that I would be completely incapable of finding a job and then replicating all the things that he believed to be success, which which I actually ended up doing. I did end up uh, actually working at an accounting uh, firm of Price Waterhouse. I wasn't an accountant; I was a consultant. But and eventually, I don't think out of the same. Hopefully, I had my own reasons, but eventually, I did have uh, a wife and a house and children. The and all this. This sort of this sort of feeling I always had, uh, this duty, this obligation to go find respectable work, I think was a lot uh, from his. I don't want to say teaching, but his threat or his persistent threat. And and even though I moved away about ten minutes, you know, ten minutes after I was able to, I moved a thousand miles away from him. And I I sometimes wonder if my uh, moving across uh, across country was in a big part just to get away from the family as much as it was to find opportunity. Whatever happened to motherhood? Somewhere back in this, maybe even hearkening to those uh, Archie Bunker times in the 50s and 60s, there used to be this idea of a stay-at-home mom, a homemaker, who would uh, take care of the house and uh, actively parent the children. And then somehow, somehow in the 60s, 70s, the women's rights and the feminist movement came in, uh, probably also uh, along, I'm going to guess, I don't know this, I'm just making stuff up, uh, along with the government and perhaps some, uh, some encouragement from big business to insist that all women have to have a career, in, even after they have children, they would delegate the responsibility of raising their kids to daycare facilities, then preschool, and then the public school. Now, this is another weird obligation that just sort of appeared out of nowhere. And 
all of a sudden forced families and women to do things that were probably almost unnatural. And I don't, I don't say this from a nostalgic, like social conservative point of view, but more from a, a human flourishing point of view. Sorry, I'm, I'm struggling to come up with the words. Meaning that families are probably happier if the, there can be a mother or a father who can stay home with the children and make the home, you know, a great place to be. Now, I've, I've, um, my wife worked for probably the first two or three years of our relationship, and then she stopped. And this was even before we had children. And it was almost unheard of where I lived in Massachusetts in the Boston area, where all women are expected to work. So people would pretty much look at us like we were crazy, and they would, you know, because we were giving up money uh, so that she wouldn't have to work. And, and when I was asked about it, I'd be like, well, I, I look at it as one down, one to go, because I didn't want to be working either. Uh, eventually creating a vision where I would minimize my work and be also a stay-at-home dad while she was a stay-at-home mom. But people really thought we were crazy up there. And, you know, even when you'd say, you know, she doesn't work, it's like, well, is she looking for a job? Uh, is she looking to get back into the workforce? When is that going to happen? And it was just a completely foreign concept. And of course, when we went to go to homeschooling and unschooling, it made the decision so much easier because we were completely set up uh, with stay-at-home parents. This is a total digression, but I sort of wonder how that actually transformation, that cultural transformation actually happened, uh, both from convincing the women that home, homemaker work was inferior to some degree, that there was somehow a satisfaction in bill paying. And then I also think about it on an economic uh, sort of line of thought is, one, what, what happened to when all of a sudden the workforce uh, increased by 60% when all those women went to work? You know, people are afraid that immigrants are going to come in and steal all the jobs. What happened when the workforce over the course of a decade, uh, not probably didn't double, but probably went up, you know, 50, 60% with all the women entering, you would think that would either cause mass unemployment or would cause everyone's wages to fall, which could be the case because between that and taxes, it's now in most families economically or financially infeasible for both parents not to work. And that's despite technology introducing all of these labor-saving devices. Um, you know, they didn't have, you know, it should be cheaper to live these days, but somehow it's not. And it's really kind of baffling and, and sad as well. It's, it's truly a shame that families have to delegate the, the raising of their children from the early hours of the morning through the school day and even often afterwards to the latchkey program and that families don't have to have, get these rich experiences with each other. And it's also sad that, you know, half the population, whichever would be the stay-at-home parent, uh, has to take on the obligation, the stress, and all of the other ugly and unfortunate things about going to work. It was very much of a relief when I moved down here. We went to a homeschooling play date and would end up meeting some of our very good friends, uh, Isaac and Heather and their family, and then later Levi and Alicia and their family. 
and that weird, your crazy type of sentiment that we got up north uh, for having a stay-at-home mom uh, was completely vanished because these people who have much of the same values uh, treat their told children the same way and treat their, their work life the same way just found it natural to believe that, that a parent should stay home uh, to nurture the children. And that was kind of wonderful to see. It seems like to me that most people are much too willing to relinquish control over their own time. And I think this has to do with what I've been calling the schooled mentality through these podcasts, which is the mentality you get from attending uh, you know, 13 to 18 years of school where you're told to be apathetic, to conform, and to be obedient. And that results in these automatic, you know, the automatic turnover to work where it's already assumed that you're going to give up 40 to 50 hours of your week doing that, of your waking time, then another 10 hours in a car commuting, then um, pressed into taking your children uh, or yourself to different activities in the evening, to then clogging your weekends with errands and chores and essentially having no control over how much time you get to either enjoy yourself or to do productive things that you like or to even enjoy your positive obligations. And I think for me, that's been something that's been really hard to work on. And I think I'm finally sort of starting to get control because uh, it's, it's kind of neat when you're able to open up huge amounts of time because then you can consume it in ways that are enjoyable you can spend time with your kids uh, you can read books or listen to podcasts you can uh, consume media you can go play games you can go swimming go to the beach you can do all sorts of different things that the person who's locked into having most the majority of their time locked up you know just simply can't do I was talking with a friend about why people don't split jobs uh, so there's someone, let's say you're an executive who makes $200,000 per year. Does he ever look at that parcel of money and the fact that all of his time is taken up and say, you know what, I think I can live pretty well with $100,000 per year, but I'm only going to work 20 hours a week to get it. And then all of a sudden, if you think about this from a jobs ec ec uh, economic point of view, there is then that job splits and now there's two jobs where there's one. There's now two people. Uh, making a decent living at $100,000 per year where, and only working 20 hours a week where pre previously there would have been one person making twice that. And then if you wanted to keep doing it, you could double, you could split both those jobs and have four people working 10 hours a week for what is for 50 grand, which is about the, I, I think that's about the, the median or the average uh, salary or, or earnings for a household in the United States. So it's just, I... What I do see is most people not giving the time question any consideration whatsoever. And I think it's even more important than the what do you do for work question any day of the week. Some people really like to get their panties in a big twist over things they have no control over such as stuff they see on TV, uh, such as strangers who live a thousand miles away who are politicians, uh, people fussing about uh, their religion versus someone else's religion, 
common social norms, whether they should be obeyed, uh, being politically correct, uh, race worries, all these things that this constant, uh, the environment, all of these uh, external giant uh, pressures or anxiety creators that keep society like in a constant state of tension. And for some people, some a lot of people, and you can see this when you go on Facebook or uh, you talk to other people who are really into watching t television news, uh, this really winds people up and can make them perpetually angry, uh, unpolite, frustrated, and in a constant search for some piece of truth that they can't seem to find, or in a constant search to persuade other people into being panicked or worried or angry uh, with something a politician does or how the weather's acting or how other people, other strangers are behaving. And this is preposterous, of course. So please, you know, go ahead, turn off your television and don't make these large externalities uh, a, a, an obligation or attention creator in your life. Anyways, that's my advice. I have a, I, don't, I wouldn't call it a habit, but sometimes I like to read books either about productivity or sort of wealth and value creation. Uh, some of the most important ones for me were getting uh, David Allen's Getting Things Done, uh, Ferris's Four Hour Work Week, and Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich, which I just did a podcast on. I also just finished uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Kiyosaki, I believe. And I've got other books in this line, and they've all been very helpful. Uh, getting Things Done and was just perfect for freeing my mind from the mental loops that used to occupy it all the time and for having me think about a system of keeping organized and keeping my mind clear. Four-hour work, work week was also very similar in that it focused a lot on delegation and it caused me to do a lot of analysis about things that someone else could be doing instead of myself that, you know, it'd be better if I would actually be richer if I paid someone to do an activity that I would normally have done myself. And that, that's been very successful. Um, and then the sort of the books about getting rich always have uh, neat ideas, mostly by taking alternative views from the usual schooled person uh, and using your own mind and your own creativity to create wealth. The things that frustrate frustrate me about these books, though, is I read one and I go, wow, am I a lazy slob? I have not grown my riches uh, like Rockefeller uh, has in you know this book. It wasn't Rockefeller. I forget who it was. But, you know, or I haven't gotten getting my things done. I don't have my system so perfected that I am just getting things done machine. And those actually create... A kind of weird anxiety to be sitting at the end of one of those books going well I know how to act now so I suppose I should go do it and then setting myself up with this vision of a better more productive more value creating my uh, version of me and then not doing it or not getting there all the way and I probably shouldn't beat myself up too much because uh, I'm not really a slob and I do get stuff done these books become great tools into taking another step towards being that person. But you can be your own obligation in a lot of ways if you set up expectations for yourself that can't be realized immediately or can't be realized ever. 
so it's important to sort of take a mental analysis of obligations that you're putting on yourself, you know, to be someone different, to do something different, to achieve a standard that you've made up, you know, based either on your own desires or someone else's standard. And be real careful that you're not creating anxiety cycles and obligations through just this envisionment of betterment. Does that make sense? I'm not sure. So in a, also, this reminds me, in a recent podcast I did with my, my friend Isaac Morehouse, which will be released, I think, in a month from now, uh, we talked about what is the desire or the, the deep want to be productive, and is the desire to be productive an obligation? And what I asked him is uh, he likes to write every day, first thing in the morning, and that gives him a sensation that he's been productive for that day and it makes him feel good. And I, there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's great. And I have that desire to be productive. And I often will feel bad if I'm not productive for long periods of time. And of course, I think like everybody, uh, I have days where uh, my wife and I will just, uh, you know, lay on the couch or and watch, uh, you know, binge watch Netflix TV shows or something like that you know, or we go screw around with the beach. Um, but, you know, you can't do it. I can't do it for too long before I get that pang to be productive. And what the discussion was, and uh, I think it, it bears repeating, it's, or it's worth repeating, that, you know, we can't figure out whether the desire to be productive is something that's innate or even biological. You could see how it could be uh, when we were more primitive you had to be productive some part of the day to ensure that you ate. You'd have to go catch food or you'd have to go grow food. And so that biological imperative might be in our DNA. And we might even get sort of pleasure receptors uh, when we are productive, knowing that's going to mean we're going to eat or we're going to do something new. And maybe displeasure. I'm, I'm just totally making up biological chemistry, by the way. Um, you know, we have some kind of internal signal that makes us feel bad when we're not productive over a certain amount of times. Now, the other the other idea is it could also be more nurture than nature, that the the pang to be productive comes from our parents, our culture, our schools, and everyone else who demands that we actually do something, um, lest we're a bad person. And of course, if you're an employer, this is absolutely essential in convincing your employees to work uh, at a constant and full pace as much as they can and to constantly measure them on how much they produce. So there's a definitely a self-interest uh, motivation there too and a personal self-motivation. In my job, I only I get paid for as much as the work I do or the work that I get out of my employees. So there is a economic impulse or an economic promotion or an economic impetus to be productive so the real the end of it is probably it's probably part the desire to be productive is probably part biological it's probably partly trained or indoctrinated into us by the culture our families in the school and then it may also uh, be a not a biological, but a mental or psychological uh, boost 
for us who know that the more we're productive, the more value will be returned to us. I don't have this completely figured out yet, but it's on top of my mind because I'm, I'm trying to trying to think of like a thought experiment where let's say I, I were to win the lottery uh, or otherwise have a substantial passive income that I didn't have to do anything to promote. Could I be satisfied living, you know, completely um, hedonistically? Could I, could I enjoy myself if I just consumed media, uh, took walks on the beach, and did other things that didn't actually produce anything? What's weird is when people retire and they have their money, many people desire to continue to be productive in, in sort of a non-marketable or unmarketable ways. You know, so they do things like practicing their golf game. They may paint. Uh, they may try to write a book. They might learn music. They might travel. and Or they might even uh, participate in charity where they'll work at a soup kitchen or something. And all of these things are essentially unmarketable activities that people still look at and say, oh, you're still doing something. You're still being productive. Uh, even this, pod this podcast is sort of an unmarketable affect or asset that I've created almost simply because it's satisfying to be productive uh, as well as share my ideas, but just to create something for other, you know, that hopefully will create value for myself and other people. The original title of this podcast was going to be, quote, a life without obligation, unquote. And it was going to be sort of a, both a perspective and a history of how I systematically removed obligation and duty from my lives. But when I thought about it more, it's not really true at all because there's these intrinsically motivated obligations that are good. So for example, I purposely, very purposefully, uh, and you can ask my wife, uh, chose to have children. And children are an enormous obligation. They're a 24 seven, got to take care of them, got to provide, got to feed them, got to teach them, got to love them, uh, obligation. And I know some people will go into having children because they think it's the thing you're supposed to do, uh, after you get your job in your house and then they end up hating it. And that's awful. Me, I knew I was going to love it and knew what was what I was getting into. I think the same thing is for, you know, earlier I said, uh, homeownership is a can be a negative ob obligation but if you really love where you live and you love customizing and building a place uh, up to be with the perfect place where you want to spend time then a house or a boat uh, or that nice car can be a, a positive obligation to have if you enjoy it more than you dislike paying for it if you it uh, creates more joy than the the obligations, the negative, negative parts of the obligation provide, then you're winning. Same with starting a company or creating something new, like a podcast, for example, where you commit that you're going to spend a lot of time and energy uh, building something that you think will make you happy and more valuable in the future. So it's just being able to understand what are the good obligations and what are the bad obligations in your life. And I, I don't think you can go on autopilot. I think it's something that you have to purposely work for and, again, be analytic and creative in figuring out what you want. I had teased at the idea. I wrote this down. 
uh, of developing obligation management software. And I'm not sure exactly what it would do, but it would probably have one piece, because I, uh, I don't want it to turn into like a to-do to -do list type manager. There's already plenty of those. But it would probably have some kind of analysis function where you could evaluate which obligations are external and bad versus which ones are internally created and good. And then it would have a way to manage those obligations and the your asset of time, you know, over time and help you live a better life. But I have no idea what, what the software would actually look like. Here's a book I highly recommend called How I Found Freedom in an Unfree World, a Handbook for Personal Liberty by Harry Brown. Harry Brown was a uh, longtime libertarian. I think he was a radio broadcaster. He had a show. He's an author. He's written about a dozen books, and he did run for president, uh, I think, in the 90s uh, as a libertarian, even though he didn't really believe in politics whatsoever. Uh, this book is out of print, I believe. I think you can get a free PDF online if you Google it. Um, or if you need to get a used copy or a new copy, you'll pay a lot of money. I think I paid $70 for mine. I don't know why it's out of print, but they really should uh, put it back in. Um, if you do listen to Freedom Main Radio, uh, Stefan borrows heavily from Harry Brown's work. He admits it. He um, he doesn't he doesn't necessarily source every one of his points of view, but if you read this and a little bit of uh, Rand and Rothbard, you can see how most of uh, Molyneux's perspectives go. Anyway, what's neat about this book is that it's all about this topic that I've been talking about today. It's not worrying about the angry political libertarian stuff like politics and the war and every, the wars and everything like that, but rather looking for personal freedom. And so what I tell people uh, is that the table of contents itself, if you just took the two pages that it was, you would almost not need to read the book. The table of contents is almost uh, a useful tool just in itself. So, and it's the first part about it, it talks about why you're not free. And he discusses a series of traps that people uh, trap themselves in that where they take away their own freedoms. So the traps here are like the identity trap where you think you have to be a certain person and you constantly work towards that obligation, uh, even though it might not be the right one. And I'm just going to read these. I don't think I need to explain them all. Uh, there's the identity trap, intellectual and emotional traps, the morality trap, the unselfishness trap, the group trap, the government traps, the despair trap, the rights trap, the utopia trap, the burning issue trap, the previous investment trap, which we talked about there about uh, sunk investment, the box trap, I'm not sure, I can't remember what that one is, the certainty trap, and that's it. And then in part two, he does a little uh, sort of perspective analysis on how you can be free. And he talks about how you can achieve freedom from the government, freedom from social restrictions, freedom from bad relationships, freedom from marriage problems, freedom from jealousy problems, freedom from family problems, freedom from business problems, freedom from insecurity, 
freedom from exploitation, freedom from the treadmill, and freedom from pretense. And then part three, he talks about how you do this analysis and set up your new life. So the chapters are, who are you? Your own morality. Is your life what you want it to be? A fresh start and making changes. So anyway, a great resource and a great line of thought that helped me a lot. Although I had already stumbled through a lot of it before I got the book. It was too bad that I didn't get the book 15 years ago. I probably could have saved a lot of time. I probably don't need to explain the two two or three movie clips that I play, played at the beginning of the podcast. The first one with the diarrhea song uh, was really just gratuitous. I was looking for the second clip, which has uh, Steve Martin and Steenburgen having that conversation about uh, have to and obligation and everything I do is have to and how what a weird frustrating feeling he had when he realized that everything he had to do was have to and that was the exact horrible and unsettling feeling that I've been trying to rid from myself for for a long time but the diarrhea thing was just I found it right there on YouTube next to it and thought it was funny the next the next track from office space it talked about what would you do with a million dollars which is the exercise and what would you do if you didn't have to work for your money and that was a very funny bit but he comes along and peter realizes that he doesn't want to continue on he doesn't say this but he really doesn't want to continue on in that schooled mentality of preset expectations and having to do what everyone else thinks that you're supposed to do so there's a good chance that he really doesn't want to do nothing. He just doesn't want to do what he's doing, and he hasn't found what he really wants to do yet. Both films, by the way, if I'm sure you've seen them already, uh, are wonderfully funny and are very intelligent in their content. So to wrap up this podcast, I'd like to go back to the question I sort of began with after we did the Ayn Rand stuff, which is, Am I making this blog and this podcast an obligation for myself? Or would it be insane to turn this podcast into an obligation? And I think we've answered that question as we went through. Because this is a positive, intrinsically motivated obligation that I've established for myself. But the moment it becomes something external, something I feel that is compelled or coerced, or forced upon me, then I hope to have the strength and the intelligence to recognize it as a negative obligation. And if that comes to be, I will be swift and resolute in murdering it immediately. Execution style. Two bullets to the head and one to the chest. Mom's favorite boy is a drunk who cannot conceive all of us. Running like we can't control our feet Paying bills don't make me smart I think I'll stay home today Instead of making decks and checks and strategy Implementation plans for clowns to play out I'm the pride of the nation 
shooting range. Here come some chums, num from fun, and from the sun come some bums, dumb as crumbs and dumb they hum. I bottled in vehicular way, settled on a chariot of shit. Come and pay the cover charge stop and watch me piss on my wrist. Trying to wash my hands of all of this salary doesn't make me intense. I'm getting bored the more I score. If I could lose the belts around my waist, let my pants fall away. Back the comb from my hair till I'm drunk from the mess. And I'll crowd around myself. I will board up my house. I will try to hide in bed till I escape the profane. With this success, respect, get text. Better let me get it, better let me set it for a pain. Failure crops an upsetting jig. I'm so sick of all this, so sick of all this shit. I could stop the fall from playing and from working every moment. So fucking important that it's shameful. And every second, another second. Upon a failure, money got the money. Sings a pretty song. Can make any man long for the seduction of his days. Oh, it makes a Get home without throwing up. <laughs>